Thank you, David, and the worship team and choir. You let us well this morning. There's something powerful about worship through music, surrender through music, especially when you're just singing words of truth and the realness of who God is. It's powerful. Thank you guys so much. Well, good morning. So I am glad to be here, glad to be here to finish out our series on the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus's words, letters, warnings, commendations to the seven churches in Revelation. I know you're probably glad we're finished. Somebody this morning said, oh, I thought we were already done with that. (laughs) But these have not been easy words. Ryan and I have mentioned many times as we've um, taught through these passages in the book of Revelation that they are difficult. They are not easy. These are not fun passages to teach on. But we believe that they are so important for us as the 2017 church. What we see in these passages in Revelation that we have studied, these seven churches, what we see in what Jesus both commended and in what Jesus condemned is really a full picture of what the church should be. So often today, um, churches just sort of decide what sort of church they want to be. Maybe they base it on what they think the personality of their church is. Maybe they base it on what um, what specific group of people they hope to reach through these church through their church. But what we see in these churches and what we see in what Jesus had to say to them is that we realize the church is not like a cafeteria. We don't just go down a line and pick the parts that we want and ignore the rest. What we've learned through these warnings to these churches is that the church should be endurance and love for Christ and love for each other and steadfastness or faithfulness and faith and sound doctrine and works and morality and life and courage and conviction and nothing less God's design for the church is that we encompass all of those characteristics. Today we finish this series with a strong picture. We see a church that doesn't make Jesus angry and doesn't make Jesus sad, but a church that makes Jesus sick. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people in this room. God, I'm so grateful as I sit and look out over this room that every person here is here by your design. Not here by chance. God, and I pray that you would soften our hearts. God, this message has troubled me this week. It's a hard one. It has caused me much um, introspection into how I'm living my life. And God, I pray as we discuss your hard words, God, I pray you would give us soft hearts. And I pray we would see you as the loving Father you are, who disciplines and trains us, who, who gives us hard words because you desire something in our lives that you know will bring us the greatest joy. God, I pray today that my words would accurately and adequately reflect your heart. I pray you'd be pleased by what happens here today and that this service would be primarily and mostly about you. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can turn to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. 
We are at the end of chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14 of chapter 3. Jesus' word to the church in Laodicea. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he will come in. I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So before we pick this passage apart, um, I want to share a little bit about Laodicea because I really believe, um, as with all of these churches, Jesus writes very specifically to these specific churches in these specific cities. And I think there's a lot of things about Laodicea that help us get a little more what Jesus might be saying in this passage. Uh, the map of the, the seven cities should be on the screen. We're good. We're, uh, praise God for a, a healed screen, right? Um, Laodicea is about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was a wealthy, prosperous city. In its time, it was the center of a, of, of a burgeoning banking industry. I'm sure it had ATMs on every corner, not unlike San Francisco. It was famous for its black sheep. And the black sheep had this um, rich, almost silky, beautiful black wool that they used, um, which, which then made this whole city a, a center for the production of clothing and other textiles, carpets and fabrics. Laodicea was also a center um, for medical education. They were particularly known for medicines that were for the ears and for um, a medicinal eye salve. And considering what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, interestingly enough, Laodicea did not have its own natural water source. It obtained its water from about six miles away via um, a very primitive aqueduct. It had two sister cities. One was Herapolis, which Herapolis had a um, pure therapeutic hot spring. And then its other sister city was Colossae that had a cold, natural running stream. So Laodicea's water arriving from six miles away arrived not hot and not cold, but tepid. And really it was full of sediment. So what Laodicea was was a great city with terrible water. So as we jump into this passage, you'll remember as we've talked every week, each of these seven letters begins 
with um, the assessor identifying himself, with Jesus identifying himself in some unique way in each of these letters. Here, Jesus identifies himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness. So we know amen as something we use to answer prayers, but Jesus used this word often, and we might know it better as verily, verily. Or if you're a King James person, or that's King James, um, truly, truly um, would be maybe what we have heard Jesus say. Whenever he says that, it signifies a significant truth. That's what this means. Amen is significant because it, it references truth. And then he backs that up by calling himself a true and faithful witness. And then he identifies himself as the beginning of God's creation. That is a reflection of the preeminence of Christ. Colossians 1.15 calls Christ the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word. That means Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the other letters in Revelation, Jesus describes himself with unique parts. In each of those, it's a unique, different part of his character. But here he ties it up with the wholeness of who he is. Truth, faithful, preeminent, eternal. Jesus' strong assertion of who he is is important as he jumps in with his evaluation of the Laodicean church because his evaluation of this church is not pretty. As with Sardis that Ryan taught us through last week, he has nothing in this church to commend. There's not anything good he highlights in this church, even less in some ways than Sardis, because at least in Sardis, um, Jesus mentioned that there were some people there who remained faithful. We don't have any indication of that here. Instead, Jesus tells this church at Laodicea that they are not what they think they are. They are lukewarm. They're not hot. They're not cold. They're lukewarm. If you've been in the church, and, and probably even if you haven't had a lot of church experience, you've probably had some exposure to this passage or this whole idea of not hot, not cold, but lukewarm. You may have ideas about what it means. Some people think that, when, think that when Jesus says cold, he means lost people. And when he says hot, he means saved people. But if we look at that, we think, would, would, would Jesus really commend Cold, if cold meant being lost, being unsaved? Probably not. One of the most common understandings of what this means sort of uh, relates to like what you would call like a spiritual fervor. As in somebody who is really on fire for Jesus is hot. And somebody who's really indifferent to Jesus is cold. But again, if Jesus commends cold in this... then would he really commend somebody who's cold-hearted towards Jesus, who's indifferent towards Jesus? I don't think any, either of those really make sense. But if we look at Laodicea, we look at the context, we look at the reality of the city, we look at their water supply, we look at Jesus' metaphor of, of, spitting, of, of something being spit out of his mouth, if you consider the fact that in Scripture Jesus never commends either neither lostness, nor cold-heartedness. What Jesus is saying here, very simply, is that the deeds of the Laodicean church are worthless. If you think about this in the context of hot 
hot therapeutic springs and, and cold, refreshing streams, neither of which Laodicea had. What, what he's saying is that the Laodiceans in their works, in their message, in their witness, neither brought restoration nor refreshment. They did not provide healing for the spiritually sick or refreshment for the spiritually weary. The deeds of these people were holy without benefit. They were worthless. And to Jesus, a church operating under his name, whose deeds were wholly worthless, that church was sickening to him. It was sickening enough for him to spit them out of his mouth. When Jesus says, spit you out, what that word really is, a better, better translation would just be to vomit. This is a fairly violent language. And it's very personal. Think about something hitting your tongue and immediately making you gag or wretch. For me, that would be any fruit. <laughs> I don't like any of them. I don't like any of those. And I especially don't like those. But I do like those. Which, to be perfectly honest, I just found out was a fruit last week. <laughs> so now I have to say, I don't like any fruit except avocados. But the truth is, if I put fruit on my mouth, I will fight an immediate gag reflex. So what in your mouth would literally make you wretch? Imagine that. How vile is that? Jesus is saying here, that is what lukewarm Christians are to me. Jesus quantifies what he means by lukewarm further in verse 17. When he tells them this, you think you are rich and have prospered and need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This church had pushed Jesus out. In their self-sufficiency, they had failed to realize that they had a daily need for dependence on Christ. And without a realization of that need, of that daily need, they became worthless to the kingdom. These lukewarm Christians had a worthless message, and it was clouded in their own delusions of self-sufficiency, of pride, of accomplishment. And the reality is that the self-sufficient have nothing new to offer the self-sufficient. And we live in a world that prides itself on self-sufficiency. These people were living secular lives under the guise of Christianity. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.5 describes people like this as having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. This church had nothing to offer the world than that what the world already had. Maybe they followed some moral code, but probably they only followed a moral code selectively as would be um, tolerable in their culture. Maybe this church went through religious motions, but their deeds lacked any power to either heal or to refresh. And I've thought about this often in a modern context. I remember one day just coming up out of the Muni at Church Street and having this thought, how many of us as Christians live our lives exactly the same way as the world? 
How often do we strive for the same things? How often do we work for the same things? How often do we spend our money on the same things? How often do we spend our time on the same things? How often do we worry about the same things? How often do we respond to difficulty or disappointment in the exact same way as the world does? And if that is us, do we really have anything to offer the world? I think we need to think about this. I was thinking about this. If Jesus has not radically changed my life, then why am I even here? I might as well be out at brunch with all the other people who don't see their need for Jesus. Jesus says here, you may think you're all these things, rich and prosperous and self-sufficient, but the reality is you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. The reality is you have nothing without me. And your deeds are worthless because you think you are all that. But in reality, you're destitute with nothing to offer. And in offering the world nothing, yet doing it in the name of Christianity, you sully Christ's name and you make him sick. These are harsh and heavy words. I wonder for us as we look at our lives and we we look at us and say, am I lukewarm? I wonder what that looks like. Here's, here's the general picture of what I think it looks like. It looks like me running my own life. And individually, I think we need to look at ourselves honestly. I mean, if you're a Christ follower in here, does the thought of Jesus spitting you out of his mouth impact you at all? I hope it does. But the key is, we need to ask ourselves this question. Does my relationship with Jesus fuel my day-to-day life? Or is my life just really still about me? Because the minute you begin to live life on your own, lukewarmness, which is a word I think I just made up, lukewarmness will begin to creep in. And it will creep in stealthily. And only you and God can truly assess your heart. What are the roots of lukewarmness for us today? Sometimes I think lukewarmness looks like compromise. It's that slow progression to the point where in order to make everyone else feel comfortable and to make yourself feel more comfortable, you begin to um, live a life that in, in many ways doesn't stand out at all from the world. And ask yourself this question, besides maybe a moral code, I mean, if we're just offering the world another to-do list, we're not really offering them anything. If you, what if you don't, what if you just have a moral code? Maybe you don't even have a moral code. Does your life really differ at all from your lost neighbors? Sometimes I think lukewarmness can look like cultural Christianity, which is going to church just because it's what you do. We don't live in a culturally Christian environment here, but many people in this church have come from an environment of cultural Christianity. Many of us grew up there, especially if you're from the glorious South like I am. Where going to church is just what you did. That's where your social connection was. That's where you made your business contacts. If you didn't go to church, you, you felt some level of guilt because that's what everybody was doing. That was, yeah, I went to a Christian college where there was a lot of shame if you didn't go to church. 
People in my dorm would get dressed up, even if they didn't go to church, they would get dressed up as if they did, so that in the cafeteria, people wouldn't know. We used to joke about people going to Bedside Baptist or First Mattress. But were our lives reflective of what Jesus was doing? Very often not, but dadgummit, we went to church. For some people, lukewarmness looks like family traditions. Did you know that not one of you in this room has been a Christian your whole life? We're not born into Christianity. Christianity is personal. It's not genealogical. It's not hereditary. In the tradition I grew up in, Christianity was um, not totally, but primarily Christianity was about certain markers. You had a marker as a baby, and then you had a marker when you were a young teenager. And then as you grew up and had a family, you had other markers. And it felt very much like Christianity was just making sure you had certain boxes in your life checked. And if all I have to offer the world is a checklist, am I really offering the world anything? Sometimes lukewarmness looks like fear-based evangelism. That, that sounds something like this. Hell is bad. Heaven has gold streets. And 24-7 golf or whatever you think you would like to spend all of your waking hours doing. And it's all good and it's all fun. And hey, if you want to go there, you just say a prayer and you're going to be good. You can live however you want to live. Because you're now secure. And then we live a life as if we have nothing new or different about us. Sometimes it looks like legalism or works-based salvation where I think I can earn my salvation either by doing or not doing certain things. And sometimes, like it did for the church at Laodicea, it looks like self-sufficiency. I can take care of myself. I think self-sufficiency, especially here in, in, in the Western can-do culture, and maybe specifically here in the capital of innovation, self-sufficiency can very easily lead the way to lukewarmness. So this morning, I think we've got to ask ourselves these questions Is Jesus real to me in the present as you sit in this room? Do I depend on Jesus, not just for eternity, but in the day-to-day of every day? Do I realize as I sit here my need for Jesus? Does he guide my heart? Does my relationship with Christ bring me joy that transcends my circumstances? Or is my Christianity just another thing in my life that I have to manage? This is so important for us personally, but it's also important for the church corporately, which is why this frustrates Jesus so much, why it makes him sick. I mean, he uses strong language in all of these letters to the seven churches. There's not one of them that is particularly soft, but nothing else makes him vomit. And to us, we may not see the magnitude of why lukewarmness is so dangerous. We may think some of these other things would do that. We don't understand why Jesus is sickened by it. Here is why. The local church carries with it great importance. Most of the New Testament is comprised of letters to either local churches or local church leaders trying to help them be stronger and more effective. The local church 
is the primary vehicle instituted by Jesus for the proclamation of the gospel and for the making of disciples. And a lukewarm church is wholly unable to carry out this mission. A church that has no dependence on Jesus and has a worthless message not only does not carry out the mission of the church, but it also can actively lead people astray. Because in the end, if a church is not really offering anything and is just functioning in the same way as the world with a Christian label, then the church actually becomes filled with lost people who have a false sense of security simply because they call themselves a Christian. And what happens in that church, and we've seen these churches all over, is that they become man-focused. And they cease to seek the kingdom of God first, like it says in Matthew six thirty-three. And sometimes they fail to seek the kingdom of God at all. I fear we have churches like this all over the country and over, all over the world full of lost people, completely unaware that, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, completely unaware that even with all of their good works, the truth is they do not know him and they will not join him in eternity. So we can see why Jesus is sick and why he is vomiting. But then... After this church has made Jesus sick and vomiting, it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus continues to pursue them. It's a beautiful picture, an amazing picture of grace. And in his pursuit, we see how we fight lukewarmness in our own lives. And I think that every single person in this room needs Jesus' counsel from this passage. Some of you may be wholly lukewarm. By wholly lukewarm, I would mean maybe you never have entered into a relationship with Jesus. And you know that. But maybe you're wholly lukewarm because you have drifted completely away from him where he means nothing in your day-to-day lives. But I think the vast majority of these people, this, this room of you are not there. You are in that place where you have areas in your life where you have grown tepid or stagnant or flat. And I think this challenge here, this this idea of where am I lukewarm, the lukewarmness acts like a fever acts in our bodies when we're sick. It's a warning sign of something else that's going on, of a deeper problem. When we have a fever, we take action to try to avoid or to heal what's going on beneath the surface. And it's the same way with lukewarmness. When we acknowledge and realize our own lukewarmness, it's an opportunity to take action. To ward off what will become complete unfaithfulness. One lukewarm area in your life will always lead to more. If unchecked. And then suddenly you will find yourself completely disconnected in any intimate relationship with the Lord. Any intimate fellowship with the Lord. So I want to challenge you as we jump into the, what I think is so beautiful in this passage. Jesus' counsel to us this morning, I want to challenge you to listen to it. Because I believe it is for every single person in this room. Here's what Jesus says. Number one, he says, pursue me for true riches. Spotless clothing, 
and spiritual sight. In verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And this is so cool how he speaks to them so clearly in their context where their false security is in money He offers them pure gold, gold refined by fire. That just means the purest of gold, no impurities. He offers that in himself where he knows they will find true riches that they so desire. Then he offers them white, pure garments to cover their shame. And this is in contrast to the the ubiquitous black wool garments for which Laodicea was renowned. And then he offers them salve to anoint their eyes. Not unlike the healing salve that was developed in Laodicea, but this salve would allow them to truly see. To have their paths illuminated with God's wisdom so that they could see the world they inhabited from his perspective and not from man's. I wonder today, if he was writing this to us, how would he counsel us? How would he speak into our context? Maybe he would address the false security that we find in intellectualism or the the false security that we find in politics and political action. The false security we find in fighting for social justice or environmentalism or whatever ism you're into. Maybe he would address our own sense of our own wealth, our own sense of our own success. Maybe our preoccupation with our career trajectories. Maybe he would address our sense of... Uh, and pride in how enlightened we feel we are. Maybe he would address our worship of sexuality or our relentless pursuit of pleasure. Maybe he would call out our dependence on good works and on charity and on religiosity. Imagine if he was writing a letter to, to you like this. Only you know where your false security lies, where your hope really lies, what you're clinging to other than him. How and where, where, where and how would Jesus counsel you? Think about this, though. Just two verses ago, he was vomiting them out of his mouth. And here he offers them for free the riches of himself. When he says buy, buy the pure gold, he doesn't mean that they pay. It's like the invitation to salvation that's found in the book of Isaiah 55 verse 1. Where it says, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come, everyone who thirsts but has no money, buy and eat. The way that we buy is by acknowledging the reality of who we are. And then we offer and surrender our wretched, pitiable selves to him. It's amazing to me that in this close a span of verses that he has not written them off. And nor does he write us off. He's not walked away from them, nor does he walk away from us. We may reject him. We may push him out of the church, but he never quits offering us himself. Number two, he says, zealously repent. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I love this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He knows them. And even as they make him sick, he loves them. And what father does not discipline or train his children? Real love is never idle in the face of dangerous behavior. 
And he challenges them here, zealously repent. It's an interesting word that he uses, zealous, because zealous and lukewarm really don't seem to go together as words. But the truth is, by definition, any repentance is necessarily zealous because repentance is a big deal. Repentance is turning away from life as we know it. Repentance is a one-time thing that we do that leads to salvation, and it is something that we continue to do day in and day out, minute by minute in our lives as sin resurfaces and new sins and new understandings of sin surface in our lives. In Matthew 5, verses 4 and 6, Jesus describes this zealousness with words like mourning over sin, grieving over our sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Acts 3.19 says that repent so that times of refreshing will come. Cold water. Jesus is saying here, I love you. I want to train you. Hebrews 12 is such a beautiful picture of how he as our father trains us. And it says every good father will discipline his kids. What good father would not? And God disciplines us, it says in Hebrews 12, so that we will share in his holiness and bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Our perfect father desires intimacy with us so that we will experience what he knows will bring us the greatest joy. And why do we fight that so? When righteousness and holiness and peace become what we want more than our sin, then we too will zealously repent. What's holding you back? And then the third thing, Jesus says, I'm knocking on your door. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. I think this is perhaps the most amazing part of this passage. Just think about this. Laodicea has pushed Jesus out of the church. They have decided that they know best, that they are good enough, that they do not truly need Jesus. It is his church and he has been pushed out. And he has in his hands the power to simply wipe out this rebellious and nauseating church. But what does he do? He stands at the door to his church, and he knocks. There's such amazing grace and love and humility in that reality. He knocks and he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is the language of immediate relationship. This is the language of intimacy. That's what, when he says dine with you, he's saying I can, that is the most intimate thing that we can do. This isn't him banging on the door. You unlock this door right now, young man, like when my son locked himself in the bathroom when he was younger. It's not that. He's not an angry knocking. Let me in. It is a knock of invitation to intimacy. If you open the door, he says, you will have the whole fullness of what and who I am. And we will be intimate, dining and fellowshipping together. Do you realize what this says about Jesus and how he sees you? He loves you even when you make him sick. 
Corrie ten Boom said it so beautifully when she said, There is no pit so deep that his love is not deeper still. I wonder how many of you sit here week after week resisting his knock. How many of you know that he is calling you to himself, calling you to repentance, calling you to turn away from everything that you are following, and yet you resist? Maybe you fear him. Maybe you aren't sure that he and the life that he may call you to is worth it. I was sharing with a friend um, a few days ago, sharing a little bit of our story. And I was talking about Stephanie, and I thought about this. You know, so I, talked, I told him about how her faithfulness to me so many years ago when I walked away from our relationship, when I violated the trust of our relationship, her persistent and never-ending faithfulness to me, It has done several things. It has given me amazing peace and security in our relationship, but it also has given me great joy. And the truth is, when I recall that faithfulness, no matter how messy our relationship might get, no matter the conflict that we might be in, when I reflect on and contemplate her consistent faithfulness to me, love wells up in me for her. But as I was talking about that and thinking about this, I realized how crazy it is that how completely tiny her love and faithfulness to me is compared with the love that Jesus shows right here in this passage. How easy it is to forget Christ's faithfulness to us. Why do we so closely cling to the things that will never satisfy us? Why do we hold on to the things that will always disappoint us? What we give up in following the Lord will never come close to comparing what we gain in Christ. Which can all be boiled down to one thing. Intimacy with the God of the universe. He died for us. And you might think that might be the limit to his grace. But he offers us daily grace. Hebrews 4, 16 says, It invites us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. For a well-timed help every day. Jesus offers us the gospel each and every day. And in that, he gives us what no earthly money could ever buy. We gain Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that in Jesus, all of God's promises find their yes. Each of these three words of counsel that Jesus gives the church in Laodicea, this church that had pushed Jesus out, each of these three things represents the gospel to us. And sometimes as Christians, we can forget that we need the gospel every minute of our lives. The grace is not just to save us. Grace is to sustain us. We are not just dependent on God for eternity. We are dependent on him each and every minute that we walk on this earth. Our salvation happens in a moment, yes. But then we spend our lives, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, we spend our lives working our salvation out. And sometimes it's so easy to forget. Do you sit here and do you know as you sit here that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked without the gospel? without the good news, without Jesus. 
Do you have a sense of what God rescued you from, or, or has that drifted from your consciousness? Or have you ever really known it? Do you realize the magnitude of what it means and what sort of life God, grace calls you to? Or do you sit here and go, you know what, I think I'm okay. I'm good. I prayed a sinner's prayer in the seventh grade. I was baptized by immersion. I think I'm good. Or my parents baptized me. Then I got confirmed. I'm generally a good person. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. My checklist is complete. I think I'm good. Or you know what? I'm just going to wait for eternity. I think I'm secure for then. So now I've got the rest of my life to live as I please. Or do you sit here like Paul, who was a saved man when he wrote in Romans seven fourteen, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If we do not recognize our need for the gospel day in and day out, we are on a path to lukewarmness because if we don't realize what we need, we will forget what we have been given. And all of our good deeds will be worthless. As we wrap this up in verse 21, Jesus pushes this to eternity. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The prize of heaven, the prize of our salvation is intimacy now as Jesus invites us to dine with him and it is a seat at the throne for eternity in heaven. This is our ultimate hope. It's not gold streets with mansions and grandma and your dog that died when you were a kid. This is the hope of heaven. It is eternity with Jesus. And if being seated with Jesus on his throne for eternity is not compelling to you, if you think that doesn't sound that great, then please hear my warning. There's a good chance that Jesus is not important to you today. An eternal relationship with someone that you are indifferent to on earth is not an appealing thought. And the truth is that if we don't have relationship with him now, we will not have one with him in heaven. This entire series has challenged me greatly. It's been painful to preach because it's been painfully personal and not just to preach it, but as I've listened um, to Ryan on the weeks that I haven't been up here. This series has caused me to assess my love for Jesus and the reality of how that's fueling my life. It's caused me to assess the hardness of my own heart. It's caused me to look at areas in my life where I look alive, where you all may see life, but in reality there's death. And this week I've seen areas of my life where lukewarmness has set in. And it's caused great pain as I think about what my worthless witness does to my Savior. But more than these challenges, I have been overwhelmed by this picture of how a sickened Jesus continues to pursue me. More than guilt, this picture of him pursuing me has spurred in me a longing to live in that place where I am wholly dependent on him. Where my life is gained simply from my relationship from him. And where 
being wholly dependent on him, he cannot help but flow out of me in my interactions with the world. For all of us, this is true, but I know that in spite of all of my areas of faithlessness, he loves me. And at the end of the day, I desperately desire, and I hope you do too, for my life to offer the healing and refreshment of the gospel through an ever-increasing faithfulness to the God who saved me. It's time for me to zealously repent. And I don't think I'm the only one. And I wonder if you'll join me as a church, as individuals. I wonder if you have ears to hear Jesus' warning and his solution. I want to spend some time this morning as we respond to this. I don't know what zealous repentance looks like for you. But I think if we're all honest, we can see areas of lukewarmness in our hearts and in our lives. And the way for this church to fade into the sunset would be for us not to check those areas. Not to zealously repent. Not to ask God to give us more of himself. Not to open the door when he knocks. So I want to have some time. I want to have some time for us to go to the Lord in repentance. To go to the Lord where we're weary, where we're tired, where we have given up on him and we have attempted to assume control over our own lives. Areas where we've compromised, areas where we've relied on tradition or cultural Christianity. Areas where we have chosen to be self-sufficient rather than relying on God. I want to encourage you to, to be honest with God in this time. Be honest with us. The altar will be open. You can come down here and pray symbolically, turning over your life to him. I'll be up here. You can come pray with me if you need to. You can kneel at your seat. You can stand. God is calling us to something. I believe, as I always have, that God has great desire for this church to be a light in this city. But we will not be a light if we are a lukewarm people. Our witness and our deeds will be worthless. So let's have a time of response, a time of prayer. Please um, ask the Lord for courage to do what he's calling you to do this morning. And then I'll close it in a minute. But I'm going to be up here and the, state, the, the altar is open. These steps are open for prayer. God... Your words are hard sometimes. But God, I don't know how anyone could sit and contemplate what it would mean for you to be so sickened by their life that you want to spit them out of your mouth. God, I confess my own areas where I'm lukewarm, where I rely on myself where I really have nothing to offer the world, where I look just like the world. 
God, I desire to turn from those things. And I pray that you would just remind me this morning of what I have in you. And I pray for each person in this room. God, I pray you would reveal areas of lukewarmness in our lives. God, more than anything, I pray that we would be a body of people who reflect you, that we don't look like the world, that we don't look like people striving after the same things that everybody else is striving for. But God, that we would, as we rest in who we are in you, God, that we would, that we would pursue you and that the world would see that you only offer, only you offer true healing and true refreshment. God, may we be hot, hot or cold or both, but never lukewarm. The altar is open to spend some time contemplating what God may be speaking to you this morning.